Less than two weeks away from the mayor's race, and we have Seth Richardson here to talk about what's going on there with some updates and the momentum. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Seth Richardson and my colleagues, Lisa Garvin and Laura Johnston. I should start to tell people we're going to be changing the name of this podcast on November 1st to Today in Ohio. We'll talk about that more in the next week and a half, uh, but we will be changing it. We, we got lots of comments from people about whether we should or we shouldn't. The consensus seemed to be that we should. Again, we'll be having more conversations about it. Happy Wednesday, all. Happy Wednesday. Hello. How's Morning. everybody doing? Super. Raring to go. It's going to be another fine fall day, <laughs> although I guess it's supposed to rain tomorrow, but we have to get a little bit of rain. Let's go. Is the legal strategy of Ohio Republican leaders to preserve the gerrymandered maps that they created flawed? Why is it likely that their strategy will be obliterated by the courts? Seth Richardson, Andrew Tobias put together just one heck of a story laying this out. Uh, I haven't seen anybody else get into this like he did, and it's a real insight into what we will have ahead. So what did he find? And let's Let's keep this conversation out of the weeds because there's a lot of weeds in this one. That's it. That's a good idea. And I'm not a lawyer, but it, it, it's an interesting argument. And it kind of boils down to uh, sort of two factors, right? One is, is the, is the partisan uh, div- like share, is that enforceable in the, uh, in the redistricting process? And two, uh, which is a little, I think the more interesting side of it is kind of how this reform was sold to voters and what was sort of the intent behind it. And, uh, you know, uh, Matt Huffman and Bob Cup, the Senate president and House Speaker, you know, respectively, have kind of argued that the political standards test is more aspirational than anything. But, uh, you know, Stephen Steinglass, who is a you know retired Cleveland State University professor, probably one of the best scholars on the Ohio Constitution, you know, that there is, you know, has done like some work on the uh, Constitutional Commission and whatnot. Uh, he said, you know, that he thinks that it is one enforceable and two that the court is going to take into account how these reforms were sold to voters and they were sold to voters as basically kind of a way to, uh, you know, end partisan gerrymandering to quit giving a single, you know, one political party more leverage over the other in the redistricting process. Well, it goes even further. The Republicans told the voters that the districts would be drawn proportionally to the voting in Ohio. This is, what's interesting about this is there's almost a trigger in the law that says if the maps are compact, that then then it's fine and there's no more testing and, and all of those other goals were aspirational. No voter who went to the polls thought of that as aspirational. Remember, the League of Women Voters have a thing going to completely change the way we draw lines. The Republicans in the legislature got terrified that they'd lose some control and they put forth these reforms for the voters to vote on, selling it, selling it hard as these will now be proportional based on the vote. And that is what this expert is saying the court will consider. And I think given the way Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor has ruled in the past, that's going to weigh heavily on her, that she will consider what the intent of the voters were, which is really bad news for Cup and Huffman, who really are the villains in this story. They did not work in good faith with the redistricting commission to draw fair maps. They blew everybody off. They rammed something through that is completely gerrymandered and, and really have been kind of jerks about the whole process. 
process in the courts. So it's in the courts. There'll be a hearing in December. But this is good news for people who hoped that their votes counted when they changed this process, right? Well, it's going to be, like I said, it's going to be really intriguing to see how what they use from past arguments on it, on, on the reform that was passed, um, you know, in the courts and how the courts take that up, right? There's always this sort of divide in the courts among, uh, you know, textualists and people who think constitutions are living documents and whatnot. But it does seem that there, uh, there there's pretty clear precedent to use um, you know, uh, voter intentions and how a an initiative was sort of billed to voters uh, to to make a, a you know an argument one way or another. Uh, you know, Andrew pointed to Marcy's law and a you know a court decision over that and whether that gave cities you know extended rights um, you know or expanded rights rather. And, you know, the court basically said, you know, Ohio voters were told that this was for crime victims. This doesn't give, you know, corporations or, you know, cities or anything like that expanded rights because it was specifically geared towards crime victims. So uh, when you look when you go back and you look at, again, how this was sold to voters and how the court has you know, ruled on things in the past, I do think that it, it is pointing in a direction that the, uh, the Supreme Court could take. And we should point out again that the whole Supreme Court process is going to be horribly tainted because Supreme Court Justice Pat DeWine has refused to recuse himself from the case, even though his father, the governor, is a key figure in it and likely will be testifying. Pat DeWine has already participated in an order that his father be deposed, something that completely violates the judicial canons. Uh, I still can't believe that that exists. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. They just keep dropping. Who is the latest major Cleveland leader to announce an exit, this time in the business world? Lisa Garvin, it has been just one after another after another. It feels like every day we have another one on this podcast to talk about. This one is kind of a business titan in Cleveland. Yeah, the the churn continues in the business and civic world. Uh, Our latest XOD if that's a word, is Rick Chiracosta. He was the CEO at Medical Mutual. He is leaving at the end of next year, so he's actually giving a year's notice. But he's been with Medical Mutual. He's been the CEO since 2009, but basically it's been his entire 40-year career. He started out with them in the early 80s. He left briefly in the 90s, but then came back. Um, He... uh, did a couple of big accomplishments while he was there. Medical Mutual is a health insurance provider. They do provide insurance for a lot of Cuyahoga County employees, among others. But he did expand uh, the provider network across Northeast Ohio during his tenure. He also helped, uh, you know, implement the Affordable Care Act throughout the the area as well. Um, yeah, I mean, we we have two new CEOs at University Hospitals and Cleveland Clinic. We just lost Augie Napoli for. From United Way. Uh, the president of Tri-C is gone, Dave Abbott. So yeah, we're seeing quite a bit of churn. I don't know if this is a generational thing. Obviously, a lot of them are close to retirement age, those who have left. But yeah, it's going to be an interesting new generation for Cleveland, I think, depending on who their replacements are. You know, I know Rick a bit, and he's really one of those guys that is in the fabric of Cleveland. He was he was the head of GCP's board for a couple years. He's been involved in almost every major kind of charitable function. Medical Mutual is a big, big player in, in all of that. It's one of our big employers. And, and he's been visionary. He's done a lot of very good things. 
um, it's it's it'll be interesting to see who replaces him. I should point out one of the key people at Medical Mutual is the former president of our company, Andrea Hockman, who has been working very closely with Rick these last years. Uh, be interesting to see how that transition goes. He's not leaving till the end of next year. Correct. That's the that's what the announcement said. So they have plenty of time to to do a good transition. Okay, you're listening to this week in the CLE. A big group of Republican legislators in Ohio want to stop anyone under 18 from transitioning their genders. What is contained in the new law they propose? Laura Johnston, we don't go deep on a lot of proposed laws unless we think there's a chance that it could pass. This has 25 sponsors, all Republican, so that gives it some traction. Yeah, this is a quarter of the Ohio House has already signed on to sponsor this bill, and it's really wide-ranging. It would prohibit kids under 18 from obtaining hormone treatments, puberty blockers, and surgeries to transition genders, even with parental consent. It does a whole lot of other things. It restricts private insurance plans and Medicaid from paying for treatments. It could sanction the license of medical professionals who provide gender transition procedures to kids. It would ban and um, it would seize public funding to hospitals, clinics, or other facilities that provide this and limit what school officials can keep from parents when a child shares their gender identity in private. So it, this is pretty wide ranging. It's similar to, well, first of all, let me say it's called the Save Adolescents from Experimentation oh Act God. or SAFE. Yeah, right. And it's similar to the Arkansas SAFE Act. That got vetoed. And then the legislature overrode the veto. And right after that, a federal judge stopped the bill from going into effect because of a lawsuit. So you know if this passes in Ohio, we're looking at a long court battle. Yeah, you know, though, the, the very people who are proposing this law to regulate what parents can do with their children. You know, if a parent wants a child to have the transition, the parent's supposed to know best, right? These legislators are the very people that said there should be no mask mandates. Parents should be right. making the decision for their kids. So it's total hypocrisy. I, you can't I, do one and not the other. I don't understand. Remember when Republicans were all for small government and tell, you know not telling you what you could do to your personal life and with your family? I, I don't understand why this is the priority rather than looking at a whole host of other issues that we have in Ohio, like, you know, pandemic learning loss. If you're concerned about kids, let's Let's make sure that they're getting the education that they need. You know, I don't know why this is all of a sudden at the forefront. But they're the people that always say we shouldn't be regulating parental decisions with their kids. I mean, how many times has Mike DeWine said, I'm not going to force it. I'm going to leave it up to the locals. And yet here they are taking away the ability of parents to do what they think is right by their children. Yeah, Uh, it's it's continuing. I don't see Mike DeWine stepping in to veto it like maybe it, it like it happened in Arkansas. I mean, he well, hasn't. Although it would be hypocrisy in. by Mike DeWine then. I mean, it's it's just total hypocrisy to do one and not the other. The same people who scream about the the mask mandates are, are the ones that are now locking up what children can and do. I guess this was precipitated by the Center for Christian Virtue in Hamilton County in Cincinnati from a 2018 case where the parents disagreed with the kid and the and a child, a 17-year-old, went to live with his grandparents. He wanted to transition. And so they've been pushing this since then. But it, these are these are really serious situations. I don't think anybody is taking gender transition lightly. And you know, these parents are they want what's best for their kids. I just I can't I don't understand. This this is why the gerrymandering case is so important because this supermajority that that exists in Columbus is creating some very ugly laws. You're listening to this week in the CLE. 
What's happening in the Cleveland mayor's race as we enter the stretch run? And how is the ballot question to put civilian control over police figuring into it in a big way? Seth Richardson, you're all over it. Yeah, issue 24, you know, I think we pretty clear got a pretty clear preview of it, uh, you know, at the first debate or the only debate, uh, Idea Stream's only debate, I should say, uh, where Kevin Kelly, you know, really came out kind of hammering issue 24, the police reform, uh, you know, ballot initiative that would create the uh, Civilian Police Review Board. And, you know, he really hammered it then. And it was pretty clearly kind of a look into what his strategy is going to be, you know, or was and is going to be over these coming weeks, uh, trying to sort of, you know, use that as the the issue to really show the divide between himself and Justin Bibb. Uh, Justin Bibb supports it. He opposes it. And, you know, I got I got a really interesting mailer about this where, it, you know, just the language itself, I thought was kind of fascinating because, you know, con- consider both of these candidates are Democrats. Right. And this mailer from Kevin Kelly that is, you know, attacking Justin Bibb on this, uh, you know, has just some language in it, like saying it defunds the police. It's radical, risky and unsafe. And, you know, pointing out that shootings, robberies, burglaries, homicides, assaults, car thefts, all rising. And I thought that was an interesting mailer because I think to a year ago when, you know, crime kind of, you know, was it was a big issue in the presidential race. And you really saw a lot of uh, Republicans kind of using some of the same talking points with the, you know, after the George Floyd protest. So that's just that's just something that kind of fascinated me. But it's pretty clear that, you know, issue 24 is um, the, the space where Kevin Kelly thinks he sees a uh, an opportunity to, uh, you know, really kind of hammer the divide between him and Justin Bibb. But here's the thing. I, I, I think issue 24 is going to pass going away when our editorial board considered this. The, the, the issue 24 has got huge problems, structural flaws. It, it, there's a lot of parts of it that will have to be fixed once it passes, that, that it'll go into the courts and there'll be time to try and either go back to the voters or figure out some way to make this work because it's flawed. But 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 it's also born of a frustration across the city that the police are not accountable. I mean, there is this heartfelt feeling in neighborhood after neighborhood that when police do bad things, they get away with it because it's a rubber stamp. And for most of the Frank Jackson administration, he had a safety director that was a rubber stamp, so much so that the federal court lambasted him for being that. The last couple of years, they've had somebody who's better. So when our editorial board considered this, you know, normally on, on a law that's so poorly drafted, we would say don't vote for it. But but we ended up having to respect what went into the the production of this law, the incredible frustration people feel with police not having accountability. And so we basically instead of endorsing against it, we said it's going to pass. Here's how we think you should fix it, because if we had endorsed against it, and everybody would have been interpreted that as us saying things are okay. And they're not okay. They're bad. And so I'm surprised Kevin Kelly is picking this one as his line in the sand. Cause I'm not sure if it's going to pass, then he's on the losing side. Well, crime is just a, a pretty visceral topic and policing is a very visceral topic for just about everybody, you know, especially in Cleveland right now. Right. Because you do have this history of, you know, not exactly the best interactions with police between 
people in the community and officers. Uh, at the same time, you know, crime is the number one issue in in on everybody's mind, rising crime, right? So it's it's sort of a, a I guess a gamble that you make. What what is the more visceral reaction? Do people react more to the crime itself, or do they react more to the um, poor history of interaction between you know police and people in the community and you know especially like really high profile cases like tamir rice so it's not either or i mean that you're 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 those are two different issues you you have rising crime and you have strategies for how to deal with that justin bibb has talked a great deal about getting more of the police on the street but i don't think you're hearing in most neighborhoods that they want more of a, a military style presence by police. That's that's not people are not clamoring for that. That came up in the primary debates like, hold on, hold on. That's not what this is about. This is about getting at the root causes of crime, which, let's face it, it's poverty and hopelessness drive a lot of it uh, and which is what the, what the campaign is about. But police accountability is what issue 24 is about. It's it's when police do bad things that they get removed from the police force. I mean, you know, the, the guy that was driving the car that that resulted in Tamir getting killed is still a police officer. You know, a lot of the people that were involved in that East Cleveland shooting some years back are still police officers. And there are a whole lot of residents that aren't happy about that. So. It'll be interesting to see. I, I There was also a video ad that I guess is showing up in some places in which council members Blaine Griffin and Kevin Conwell are talking about how Kevin Kelly has a plan for addressing crime that, that is part of the, the Kelly push in these last two weeks. Yeah, really, I, like, I, like I said, anywhere you look, right, crime has been the prevailing issue, and I don't see any reason that's going to change in the next, you know, two weeks essentially right um the the other big piece of news that kind of came out um was uh, uh sandra williams one of justin bibb's primary rivals came out and endorsed him uh you know bringing you know him her and zach reed have both backed bibb and uh you know while while williams didn't you know like do particularly well as far as you know winning you know any single ward or anything like that she does have a pretty strong constituency on the east side um, that I think could potentially help uh, Bib, especially maybe with, you know, older women voters. Yeah, this gets back into yours in my debate over this season about how little I think these endorsements matter and how much you value them. I don't well, think well, it, well, it, it loses a, a single vote, but I, we'll yeah, see. it's it's a question of you know is is this a race that is decided on the margins? You know, I don't know. It it does seem like Justin ha has the momentum going forward, so maybe it does end up being a case where they don't matter. But I guess the other way to look at it is it certainly can't hurt, right? It doesn't hurt. No. It, and the fact that she doesn't come out for Kelly is a statement because he's the number two guy in the county Democratic Party. I don't know. I, I, I think this is this is becoming kind of a runaway. I'll be surprised if uh, Bib doesn't win by at least eight points. But I'll ask you for your prediction next week. You're listening to this week in the CLE. We've talked about it seemingly forever, but is the plan to build a wind farm on Lake Erie nearly dead? Lisa Garvin, I did not realize the dire straits this project was in. And like I said, we've been talking about this forever. Yeah, time is quickly running out for Lead Co., which is Lake Erie Energy Development Corporation. Their plan, as you said, has been in the works for a few years now. They want to build six wind turbines about eight to 10 miles straight off Cleveland's shoreline there. But they have to have their financing completed by the end of this year. 
If they don't, they will lose the rest of a 50 million grant that they got from the Department of Energy 10 years ago now. They only have about 37 million of that grant left. The total cost of the project would be about $173 million. They've only raised a little outside of the grant. They only have one really power commitment right now. Uh, Cleveland Public Power said they would buy like one third of the power generated by these turbines. But uh, experts are saying that even if Leadco gets more, you know, uh, more power commitments, it won't be enough to save them. This this breaks my heart. It's it would be if Icebreaker, which is what the project is called, comes to fruition, it would be the first freshwater wind farm in North America. It would have, you know, helped provide renewable energy to this area. It just, it just breaks my heart that they, and you know, the legislature tried to cripple this project from the outset, couldn't run it at night. They were worried about birds. I mean, so I, I, I hope this isn't the death knell, but it really doesn't sound good at this point. Well, and there are a lot of people that are opposed to it that that are going to be celebrating if it finally goes away. This was not one that was a had a hundred percent of the community behind it. There were a lot of birders that were against it. There are people who love the lake that thought this would wreck the view of the lake. And there was also the question: when this thing expires, was there going to be any money to take out the the big pieces of equipment that are out there? Or do they just slowly rust away and become hazards but I, I had no idea that it was this close to oblivion but yeah me too like that's where it's headed and i know they're they're speaking I kind of some, this, go, go ahead no go ahead sorry laura. this is laura johnston i i actually was surprised that it was still going on i thought that they kind of gave up because we hadn't heard about it since that poison pill but I, I think the the big issue was not just this you know like a couple of of wind turbines it was the idea that this was going to turn into a wind farm you know with hundreds and um, yeah, I got a lot of people up in arms and a lot of very divisive opinions on this. So um, it'll be interesting to see if it ever comes up again. I don't think they're going to end up with the money this year. No, no I don't think. No. This, I mean, they said the state is key and the state's not going to give them the money. For right. This. There's no there's not a. Yeah, they're trying Push to speak with some lawmakers and Matt Dolan and Kent Smith, who actually is, is for Leadco, they've kind of lent an ear. But, you know, the, they don't really know how to move forward as a legislature do they impose surcharges i mean there's no plan so yeah i i'm afraid we're putting a nail in the don't, coffin here go ahead don't you wonder i mean this hasn't come out but like first energy involvement in this if they were so political and pushing their agenda they they wouldn't have wanted this you know a freshwater wind farm <laughs> nobody trusts first energy i mean all the people that are getting the big bills they believe they're being cheated first energy has a credibility problem that i don't know if they can ever overcome if their name comes up everybody automatically is suspicious because the company is criminal in the way it operated in hb6 so you're right when you bring in first energy it's immediately like what what you're listening to this week in the cle when is a rule not a rule? The Ohio Supreme Court tried to answer that question in a very technical ruling involving the death penalty. Laura Johnston, in the end, this was about a couple of death row inmates trying to delay their execution through process. Let's try and clear up the technical parts of this and make it simple to understand. Right. This is a unanimous decision from the Ohio Supreme Court, and they decided that this 21-page protocol that the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction uses to carry out lethal injection 
doesn't need to be submitted through the state's formal rulemaking procedures. The idea is this is basically an instruction manual for employees. It's an order that governs the day-to-day staff procedures and operations within an agency. And under state law, that is exempt from the official rulemaking process. The rulemaking process requires proposed rules to be published before they go into effect with public hearings for people to comment. And so this did not need to happen in this case. Yeah, I mean, the the back and forth on a rule or whatever. I mean, in the end, the inmates wanted to push this through a, a bunch of red tape to delay their execution. Right. And the Supreme Court said, no, of course, there are no executions happening right now. Mike DeWine has made clear he's not going to be signing death warrants. But eventually, somebody may be in the chair who's more willing. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How are Republicans in the legislature seeking to loosen gun laws by helping out people who make a mistake and actually break the law? Seth Richardson, this is an interesting move to to make life easier for concealed carry holders. I actually think it's a little bizarre, all things considered. Um, and basically, the uh, the proposal is that if somebody who is uh, concealed carrying a handgun into a, a place that's prohibited, like courthouses, schools, businesses with signs prohibiting concealed carry, um, you know, normally they would be charged with a misdemeanor. Uh, this would basically, this bill would basically give them a mulligan and. Um, you know, say that, oh, they have to be told to leave. And, uh, you know, if they leave, then they wouldn't be charged. But if they came back, then they would be charged. And again, it's, it's kind of strange because, you know, a lot of the, the gun lobby really focuses on, uh, you know, gun safety and responsible gun ownership. And part of responsible gun ownership is knowing where your firearm is at all times. Um, So I'm kind of curious to see if the gun lobby really gets on this. I, look, I, I like this idea, right? I wanted to expand to traffic laws. So if I get pulled over for doing 85 on the turnpike, have the cop ask me nicely not to do it anymore and say, don't do it for the next 30 days. I'm all in for that. I mean, I think this is great. We could apply this to all sorts of things where where people break the rules, right? Because we're just not going to hold people accountable for serious things like carrying a firearm into an elementary school. This This goes beyond... All kinds of rational thought. I mean, it's it's basically we're going to exempt you from having to follow the law. And I just don't get it. And think about what that means. If you own a business and you do not want people with guns in your business and somebody comes into your business with a gun, no harm, no foul. If you see it, you just say, hey, could you please leave? The sign on the door is not enough. It's Looney Tunes. Well, yeah. And I mean, like I'll speak as a gun owner, like I I own firearms and, you know, this isn't like you're wearing a hat into a store that you're not supposed to wear. This is a deadly weapon. You're taught, you know, like every gun safety class, you are taught always be aware of your firearm, know where it is, especially if it's on you. These things are dangerous, deadly weapons. So this whole idea of, you know, it's just a bill that, you know, especially when you you have – People who are pro-gun are constantly talking about safe gun ownership and responsible gun ownership. And here we have a bill that is kind of trying to uh, exempt, I would, I kind of think, irresponsible gun ownership. That's why I'm interested to see if, you know, uh, people like Buckeye Firearms Association, like if they get on board with it. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. It's one of the more wacky laws I've seen come across. A bunch of things being proposed suddenly. I guess there must be an election year next year. You're listening to This Week in the CLE.
Who was the oldest inmate in an Ohio prison and what did he do to be there? Lisa Garvin, our reporter, John Keniglia, took a look at the geriatrics in the prison system. I was surprised how old this one was. Yeah, Roy Schrock is 96 years old. He is the oldest person in the Ohio prison system right now. He was sentenced to life without parole back in 1989 he uh for rape and and abuse of a child in lake county so he served 32 years um although there we have an increasingly geriatric population because you know we're not uh, putting inmates to death we're not sentencing to them to death a lot of them are in life in prison without parole like mr schrock uh, one in five inmates in the ohio prison system is over 50. They listed the 10 oldest inmates. The youngest of the oldest is 87. His name is James Ruppert. And he, this was a very famous case for those who remember, he killed 11 family members back in 1975 in Hamilton, Ohio, but he's up for parole. He did not get life without parole. So he could be paroled in 2025 and he'll be 91 by then. Yeah, it's it, it was it's surprising to see that many. I mean, it just creates a whole different kind of role for the prison system, a, a whole health problem for the and the, the cost. Yeah, I problem. mean, these guys are living thirty and forty years behind bars. There's the cost to keep them. But apparently, some advocates are advocating for the release of geriatric inmates because of the cost and the claim that you know after fifty, their chances of recidivism wane. So, I don't know. Although the deal was when they when people stopped getting the death penalty, the, the promise to people was they will never get out that instead of executing them, they'll save all the money and and all of the, the extra court work. But you're not supposed to get out if you get life without parole. So if they start releasing them, they're kind of reneging on what they promised people. Check out John's story on Cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Well, thank you. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Laura. Thanks, everybody who listens to this podcast. We will be back Thursday with another discussion of the day's news. 